Ruth, chapter 2, verse 14 through 23. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here and have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephod. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finished harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law, the word of the Lord. Advent is uh, the season of the year that we're in, and Advent literally means arrival. So while Christmas time is the time of year when we uh, celebrate the fact that Jesus arrived once in the past, Advent is the season leading up to Christmas when we remember that we're still waiting and still longing for Jesus to arrive once again and set things right in a world where everything is falling apart. Which means that the book of Ruth is a wonderful book to study during Advent because it shows us what God is doing about a world in which everything is falling apart. But one of the most beautiful things about the book of Ruth is that it does so by showing us what God is doing in the life of one poor widow named Naomi whose life had fallen apart. The big question is, how is God going to show his love in her life? If you've been with us, you know every week we keep seeing this Hebrew word, chesed. That's God's unstoppable love. It's a love that never gives up, never lets go, and never lets you down. And so every week as we go through this story, we're seeing a different way that God's chesed love manifests itself in this world. And this week we're seeing that God's love overflows. Now, what does that mean and why is it so important? Well, let me ask you a question, and it's a stupid question, but that's part of the point. 
Here's the question. Do you want to make the world a better place? I told you it's a stupid question. And the reason it's a stupid question is because we just take certain things for granted with this question. Whenever we say we should make the world a better place, we're just assuming certain realities like, number one, we assume that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Number two, we assume that we have a moral obligation to change this world. And number three, we assume that we already have a vision of what a better world actually looks like. Now, leave aside for a moment the question of how it is we actually know all of these things. We talk about this all the time here, so please keep coming back. But for now, here's the big point. Our longing for a better world is deep in our bones. Our longing for a better world, it's deep in our bones. Christmas is a time that stirs up that longing inside of us. So even if you're not a religious person or identify as a Christian, Christmas is a time that stirs up our longing for a better world, and especially it stirs us up to feel like we should just try to be a little bit more loving, a little more patient, a little more generous, as if we actually have a part to play in making this world a better place. So here's the big question this morning. Is there a connection between what God is doing in this world and what we're supposed to do? The answer is all wrapped up in this idea of God's overflowing love. Let's learn more about this overflowing love by seeing three things about it in this morning's passage. We're going to see its transforming nature, its hidden invitation, and lastly, its redeeming power. We're going to see about God's overflowing love, its transforming nature, its hidden invitation, and lastly, its redeeming power, okay? First, its transforming nature. Now, let's remember a little of the backstory here. Naomi is a Jewish woman whose family had to move to the country of Moab in order to escape famine. But while she's there, her husband dies, and then her sons die, and eventually she moves back to her hometown of Bethlehem, with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's a foreigner. She's a Moabite. So these two widows are destitute. And at the beginning of chapter 2, we looked at this last week, Ruth goes out into the fields to glean during the harvest. In Israelite law, there was a provision known as gleaning. You can read about this in Leviticus 19 or Deuteronomy 24. If you were poor, you could go out into the fields during harvest, and the owners of those fields were required by God's law to leave some leftovers or gleanings for you to pick up. And even though this was a way of making sure that the poor had something to eat, at the same time, it was pretty meager. I mean, it's kind of like scrounging for food in an alley dumpster behind a restaurant. Imagine living on leftovers. And because here's how the gleaning worked. In a harvest, there were two teams of people. The first team would go in and they would cut down all the grain. And then the second team would come after the first team and they would gather all the grain into bundles or what was called sheaves. And it was only after that second team had already gone through the field that the gleaners could come in and pick up the leftovers. Like I said, pretty meager. But the amazing thing, and Beverly showed us this this last week, is that Ruth comes with this bold request that she be allowed to go in with the second team and pick up the grain before it's been gathered into bundles. It's shocking that she would have requested this. 
It's even more shocking that the man who owns the field, Boaz, tells her, go for it. But that's just the beginning of what Boaz does for her. And so as we pick up the story this week, after Ruth has been working in the field all morning long, um, everybody sits down to gather for the midday meal. And um, remember, Ruth is a foreigner. And not just any foreigner, she's a Moabite, which means that um, she's an enemy of Israel. There was an incredible level of racial hostility between these two nations in those days. So the first thing Boaz does is this. He invites Ruth to sit down and eat with the rest of them. This is way more than just seeing the new kids sitting by themselves in the cafeteria and you invite them to sit at your table. In the ancient world, to eat a meal with someone was a way of saying, I accept you, I welcome you, I honor you, you have status here. By the way, this is one of the big reasons Jesus was always getting in trouble with the religious leaders, because he was eating meals with sinners and tax collectors. To eat a meal with someone was to honor them with status and dignity. So from a social standpoint, what Boaz is doing here is radical. He is overturning all kinds of racial and social norms. But second, not only does he invite um, Ruth to go in with the second team and, um, and pick up grain with them, he also tells that team of people not to mistreat or abuse her. Because the... Um, uh, the frightening reality of the day is that a foreign woman from a despised country in those days um, was in danger of being attacked, uh, or at the very least, shoved aside and treated roughly. On top of that, he tells the team to pull out the grains from the bundles and leave some of those for her. And as if all of that wasn't enough, he also tells Ruth that she's welcome to come back to his field and glean for the rest of the harvest. Friends, not only is this radical from a racial standpoint, what Boaz does here is radical from an economic standpoint. He is severely cutting into his profits as a businessman in order to help Ruth and Naomi. Now, we're told that um, Ruth picked up about an ephah of barley. Now, an ephah is about 30 pounds. Imagine carrying home one of those big bags of dog food. Ruth uh, gathers uh, 30 pounds of barley that day. Now, Boaz said, you can glean in my field for the rest of the harvest, which is about seven weeks. So do the math. 30 pounds a day, six days a week, for seven weeks, that's 1,260 pounds of barley. <laughs> that's over half a ton of food that Boaz gives to Ruth and Naomi. Friends, here's the point. This is overflowing love, and it radically transforms Everything it touches, it transforms racial norms, social norms, economic norms. You know, uh, we like to pride, uh, pri uh, take pride in ourselves as modern people, it, that we are morally enlightened, socially progressive people. We care about things like racial equity, social equity, economic equity. We care about caring for the poor and the oppressed. But where does our progressive social ethic come from? We're looking at it. Our modern social ethic comes to us from the Bible. And I'm not saying that the ancient world didn't care about things like justice or morality. They did, but it was a very different kind of morality in the ancient world. For instance, I've mentioned Teresa Morgan before. Teresa Morgan is a professor at Oxford University in England of um, Greco-Roman history. Um, in fact, she wrote a book 
you can't see the title, but it says she wrote a book called Popular Morality in the Early Roman Empire. So she's actually, you know, kind of an expert in this area. What was morality like in the ancient world? Teresa Morgan describes it as an ethic of survival. What does that mean? Well, here's how she describes it as a world of vast social inequality and enormous economic insecurity. <coughs> they, uh, there were no social safety nets. If you lost your livelihood, if you lose your land, you're on the streets. That means sheer survival from day to day dominated the thinking of almost everybody all the time. So in the ancient world, Teresa Morgan says, it was actually morally praiseworthy to harm your enemy because that meant you were protecting your family, you're protecting your tribe. In the ancient world, there was no caring for the poor because in order to care for the poor, that would have meant taking food out of your family's own mouth and giving it to somebody else. That would have been considered immoral in the ancient world. But, Teresa Morgan says, when you read the New Testament, when you look at the early church, you see a community of people on the bottom of society. And, and when you look at them, what you see is, uh, is them um, going out of their way, risking their own um, health and safety in order to care for other people. And not just in the, in the church, but throughout society, to care for the poor and the oppressed of society. In other words, in the ancient world, we see the, the beginnings of, of the social ethic that comes to us in our modern world. This is where we get our modern progressive social ethic of caring for the poor and the oppressed. In other words, um, everything that we value in this world morally, socially, ethically comes to us from the Bible. That's where it comes from. That the transforming nature of God's overflowing love is that it transforms everything it touches. It transforms racial norms, social norms, economic norms, and that leads to our next point. We're looking at God's overflowing love, and we've just seen its transforming nature, but secondly, we see its hidden invitation. Because remember the question that we're asking this morning. Is there a connection between what God is doing in this world and what we're supposed to do. Now, up until this point, it looks like the real change agents here are human beings. I mean, Ruth is the one who goes out to glean in the field. She's the one with the bold request. Boaz is the one who's overturning social norms, and he's the one showing overflowing love. In other words, it doesn't really look like God is doing that much in this passage. I mean, there's no dramatic supernatural miracles here. There's no burning bushes. There's no parting of the Red Sea. So it would be easy for us as modern people to look at this story and say, see, we don't need any of that supernatural stuff. That's all superstition anyway. If religion is going to have any real value in our modern society, it really just needs to focus on helping us become better people and making the world a better place. In other words, it's all on us as, um, as human beings. But if we do that, you know what that is? That's us imposing our cultural filters on this story. If you've ever taken a literature class, one of the main things they teach you to do is learn how to be a better reader. How, learn how to pay attention to the clues that the storyteller is giving you so that you can understand what the storyteller is saying. That's what we need to do here. This is especially important if you're exploring faith or spiritually curious because you can't make a decision about whether you believe the Bible is true unless you understand what it's actually saying. So let's take a deeper look, okay? 
Um, one of the most prominent themes in the book of Ruth, once you learn to see it, is this idea that God's love is flowing into the world through events and people and circumstances that on the surface appear to be totally random and insignificant and ordinary, but they're not. Things are not what they seem. So if you remember back in chapter 1, we saw that Naomi feels utterly forsaken and abandoned by God, but is she? Really? Things are not what they seem. And so at the, um, in the next chapter, we see that Ruth goes out into the field to glean during the barley harvest. And we read this last week. It says that Ruth um, happened to go out. She went out, and as she set out, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, when the storyteller says she just happened to come to that part of the field, the storyteller is exaggerating the apparent randomness of this event in order to highlight the fact that this is anything but random. In other words, this is masterful storytelling. It's telling us that, that there are no coincidences in God's world, that, that God is at work in even the tiniest details of our lives. That's what is going on here. So it, it's showing us that God is at work in this world, and not just through the random events and circumstances of our lives, it's also showing us that God is at work through people, that God's love overflows into the world through people who are willing to let that love overflow through them. So one of the other big things you see in the book of Ruth is people praying for each other. Have you ever um, seen someone on the side of the road asking for help, and you prayed for them, but then you kept going? That's not a good feeling. In the book of Ruth, you see people praying for each other, but doing something very different from that. For instance, last week we saw that Boaz prays for Ruth. He says, the Lord repay you for everything you've done for Naomi. But then does Boaz just walk away and say, God, I really hope you show up in her life? No. He becomes the answer to his own prayer. He overturns racial and social norms in order to welcome a racial outsider in, into community. Boaz, as a businessman, he eats into his own profits in order to materially provide for two widows. He is taking responsibility for his own prayers. And you see this happen throughout the book of Ruth. Uh, in chapter 1, you see Naomi do this. You see Boaz doing it here. Next week, we'll see Boaz do it again in chapter 3 people taking responsibility for their own prayers. And you know the really amazing thing about all of this? Is that nothing that's happening in this story is only about the individual lives of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. By the time we get to the end of this story, we find out that everything that's happening here is really about how God is bringing a king to Israel to set things right. And even more than that, by the time you get to the Gospel of Matthew, and you see Ruth's name in the genealogy of Jesus, you realize that everything that's happening in this story is really about how God is bringing a Savior to set the whole world right. Friends, here's the point. God is at work in this world. Things are not what they seem. God is at work in even the tiniest details of our lives, bringing about His purposes for the world. But the unnerving thing about all of this is that He's going to do it with you or without you. Here's what all of this means for us. The question is not, is God at work? 
He is. The real question is, will you be a part of it? Do you see how this honors and dignifies human beings? God is inviting you to be a part of the work that he's doing in this world, to be a part of the story that he's telling in this world, to be a part of the renewal that he's weaving in this world. But you can say yes or you can say no. God is inviting you to be a part of it, but you don't have to. It's kind of like the hobbit, if you remember that story. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins. And one day, Gandalf the wizard shows up at his front door with a bunch of dwarves and says, hey, we're going on an adventure. We're going to steal gold from a dragon and rescue Middle Earth. Do you want to be a part of it? And Bilbo Baggins says, um, not today, thank you. I'm rather comfortable in my little hobbit hole. But then he has a change of heart, and he runs to catch up with them and has the adventure of a lifetime. He narrowly escapes death many times, and they really do end up saving all of Middle Earth. And finally, when Bilbo gets back home and he's reflecting on everything that happened, he finds out that everything that happened was really part of an ancient prophecy. That everything that happened, it was all prognosticated years ago. And so he says, wow, so the prophecies of the old songs turned out to be true, huh? And Gandalf says, well, of course. And why should they not prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the ancient prophecies just because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself, do you? You don't really suppose that all of your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck solely for your own benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you, says Gandalf, but you are only quite a little fellow in a wide world after all. Gandalf is saying, Bilbo, there's a bigger story at work here, and you got to be a part of it. In this story of Ruth, God is saying, there is a bigger story at work here, and I'm inviting you to be a part of it. The question is not, is God at work? He is. The real question is, Will you be a part of it? And that leads to our last point. We're looking at God's overflowing love. We've seen its transforming nature, and we've just seen its hidden invitation. But lastly, we need to see its redeeming power. Because now we're starting to get an answer to that question we started with. What is the connection between God's work in this world and what we're supposed to do? We've seen that God is actually inviting us into the story that he's telling, inviting us to be a part of what he's doing in the world. But here's the big challenge. Up until this point, it still looks like ultimately it, it's really all up to us as human beings to fulfill God's purposes in this world. So yeah, that dignifies us as human beings, but it also puts the weight of the world on our shoulders and crushes us as human beings. I mean, where are you going to get the power to live like this? Where are you going to get the motivation to live like this? The only way is to see that there is nothing in this story that God is inviting you to do that he has not already done for you. Where do we see that? Well, remember, we've been seeing that in this story, the individual lives of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, that, that all of that is really pointing to a bigger story. We've seen that. So here's the question. What is that bigger story to which this story is merely pointing? Well, let's go back to our passage. Remember, Ruth has been working all day in the field, but what about Naomi? 
Think about what was going on with her. She's at home waiting and wondering and worrying, what's going on with Ruth? How's it going? How's she doing? What's happening out there? Can you imagine the anxiety and the worry that would have been going on in her heart and her mind? So, so that finally, when Ruth comes back and she's got all of this food, Naomi's mind is blown. She's thinking, like, where in the world did you work today? And even more than that, what is the name of the man who owns that field? In fact, I want to just pause and invite you to enter into Naomi's reality right now. Remember, up until this point, she felt utterly forsaken and abandoned by God. But now, all kinds of new possibilities are opening up for her. Possibilities of food, of sustenance, of not starving to death. I mean, where she's at right now, she, she just wants to know the name of this person. I mean, at this point in the story, the tension is off the charts, and the storyteller milks it for every last drop. In fact, it's a little comical, because instead of just saying the name, Ruth just drags it out and doesn't reveal the name of this person until the very end of a rather long sentence. Ruth says, the name? And Naomi's like, yeah, yeah. She says, the name of the man? And Naomi's like, I know he's a man, you silly girl. Just tell me who. The name of the man I worked with. And Naomi's like, just tell me already. The name of the man I worked with today. And at this point, Naomi must, must have just been like, Ruth, you're killing me here. Until finally, Ruth says, it's Boaz. And when she hears the name at this point, this changes everything for Naomi. Because up until this point, she was just hoping for sheer survival, just not starving to death, which is a big deal. But when she hears the name Boaz, all of a sudden, it changes everything for her. She says, this man is one of our close relatives. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, that word redeemer is the Hebrew word ga'al. You can read about this in Leviticus 25, but a guardian redeemer or kinsman redeemer, here's what this meant. If a family fell into debt and lost their land, the redeemer was a relative that would buy the land and give it back to the family. Or if somebody fell into slavery, the redeemer would buy that person out of slavery. Or sometimes, as in the case of the book of Ruth here, if a husband died without leaving any children, the Redeemer would marry the widow and raise up offspring so that the family wouldn't die out. That's what a Redeemer does. And this is way beyond anything Naomi was imagining at this point. Remember, up until this point, she's just hoping for sheer survival. But this represents the potential of redemption of everything she's lost. So much so so that she just bursts out in praise of God. She says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And you know that word kindness, you know what that is. It's the word chesed. God's unstoppable love, a love that never gives up, never lets go, and never lets you down. Naomi is saying, this is not just the generosity of a stranger. This is the love of God overflowing into my life and into the world beyond anything I could ever imagine or hope for. Friends, what are you hoping for today? How high does your hope reach? How far does your hope go? And even more than that, what name would satisfy your hopes 
today. Just like Naomi, there is a name and there is a redemption beyond, infinitely beyond anything you can imagine or hope for. Because Naomi was just listening for the name of someone who would fill her belly. But the amazing thing here is this, the revelation of the Redeemer revolutionizes her reality. The revelation of the name of the Redeemer revolutionizes her reality. Because what is a Redeemer? What does a Redeemer do? A Redeemer pays the price to win back something that was lost. That's exactly what Boaz is doing here. He's paying the price to win back everything that was lost for Naomi. And we're going to see in the weeks to come just how far he goes to do all of that. But already, what do we see here? If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you might remember that we said, the gospel shows us that the love of God moves into this world through weakness, through the ordinary, through the overlooked. And some of you perceptive people are looking at Boaz and you're saying, well, Boaz is none of those things. He's a rich man. He's a powerful man. He's a prominent man. Yes, he is. But in order to become a redeemer, he have to do. What do you see here? You see a rich man losing his wealth. You see a powerful man letting his power flow away from him. You see, a prominent man risks losing social status in order to welcome a racial outsider into community. Friends, you know, at the end of the day, this story is not showing us something that we must do. I mean, that's traditional religion. This story shows us the gospel. It shows us something that God is already doing for us because Boaz is simply pointing us to the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. When you look at Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, what do you see? You see a rich man, the ultimate rich man, losing his wealth. You see the ultimate powerful man letting power flow away from him. And you see the ultimate prominent man, and not just a prominent man, but the king of glory, the God of creation, losing his status, losing his prominence in order to welcome outsiders like you and me into fellowship and community with him. Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ doesn't give us the gleanings of his love. Jesus doesn't give us leftover love. He gives us overflowing love. And the more that love overflows to you, the more that love overflows through you. So this morning, remember, the question is not, is God at work? Yes, he's at work. The real question is, will you be a part of it? So I want to invite you this morning to let this story change the way you see the world as a place where things are not what they seem. And I want to invite you to consider God's invitation to you this morning. How can you serve? How can you welcome? How can you give? How can you be a vessel of God's overflowing love into the world? You don't have to be a rich, powerful, prominent person to do it. Look at Ruth. How is God calling you to be a part of his story, to be a vessel of his overflowing love in the world today and the rest of this week and the rest of your life in this world? Friends, the question is not, is God at work? The question is, will you be a part of it? The overflowing love of God gets to work in your life. It's transforming nature, transforms everything it touches in society. And it, it responds to the hidden invitation of God by, by becoming a part of the story that he's telling. And it can do all of that because the revelation of the Redeemer revolutionizes our reality, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? 
Abba, we praise you this morning because you are the revelation of the Redeemer who, who revolutionizes our reality, and that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. And so we praise Jesus this morning, and we ask that you would give us eyes this morning to see this world um, as it really is, a place where things are not what they seem, a place where you, O oh Lord, are at work in even the tiniest, seemingly random and most insignificant details and events of our lives, and also a place where you invite us to be a part of the story that you are telling. Father, help us to take our place in the story you're telling, to be vessels of your overflowing love in this world, and, and help us to do that uh, not because of something that... Um, that you are calling us to do, but because you have already done all of it for us through Jesus Christ, for we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, uh, we're going to receive our offering at this time. We don't pass a basket due to safe, safety concerns. Uh, there is a basket in the hallway out there, but um, the easiest and simplest way to give is simply to head over to our website, and uh, there's a give page there where you can participate online with us financially. Now, this really is a call to our members and regular attenders here. Our vision as a church is to see a city made new by the gospel spiritually, socially, and culturally. And so as members and regular attenders, if this is your spiritual home, your spiritual community, then this is something we do together. But if you are new or visiting this morning, we want to invite you, please, to remain our guest and our visitor and not feel any obligation to contribute financially. Rather, let us know how we can serve you. Uh, we do have a COVID-19 fund uh, at this church through the sacrificial giving of our members and regular attenders. So if you're somebody who's in need of assistance this morning, please let us know. There's a web page um, on our website called COVID-19, and you can find information there about how to get in touch with us if you're in need of any assistance. But for all of us, this is an opportunity to ponder how is God calling you this morning to see the world as a place where things are not what they seem? How is God calling you and inviting you to be a part of the story that he's telling in this world? Let's use this time to meditate on that. I'm going to pray for us. Then it looks like Ryan is going to play for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the sacrificial generosity of Jesus on the cross who didn't give us leftover love but gives us overflowing love. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would let that love overflow, not just to us, but through us into the lives of many others. Father, use these gifts and offerings this morning that many others may come to see and know this Redeemer, the revelation of whom revolutionizes reality. For we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.